Dithda Hadina Pabuni, the Bocasto Mescla Brion Druth, Ostias Genev Sove Berryman. Hello and welcome everyone to the Mescla Brion Druth podcasts, hosted by me, Sove Berryman. Mescla Brion Druth is a multi platform project using sculpture making and conversation to explore contemporary Cornish cultural identity. Through workshops, podcasts, a symposium and an exhibition, the project invites people to share their experiences of identity and Cornwall and their views on Cornish culture and its relationship to land, language, heritage, tourism, the Cornish diaspora and much, much more. These podcasts record conversations with guests whose research or lived experience touches on the project themes. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed are the speaker's own. All conversations are carried out with a spirit of generosity and openness, creating space for the discussions to twist and turn. And I'm very grateful to all who have taken part. For this first podcast in the series, I'm joined by Paul Odge, Grand Bard of Gorseth Kernay, Jennifer Lowe, Deputy Grand Bard of Gorseth Kernay, and Mark Trevethan, also a Bard and Principal Culture Lead for Cornwall Council. During his tenure as Cornish Language Lead at the Council, Mark was involved in the Canuit contribution to the Indyland project, IndyLan is a virtual learning app for Indigenous languages. We join the conversation with Mark telling us more about that project. Govenikam Burs, hui the omloenhei goes auto. I hope you enjoy listening. Yeah, so it was, um, that's a project involving six languages from across Europe, uh, Basque, Galician, Sami, Scots, Scots Gaelic and Cornish. So we were actually asked to take part because they they were developing this app already and wanted a critically endangered language so they could sort of uh, look at the impact of the app on a smaller language. So basically we were treated like a charity case that sort of needed a bit of help. But actually it's been quite an interesting learning process uh, meeting those other language communities and seeing that actually we've got a lot of things already in place that they haven't thought about and um, yeah that we can sort of take part in projects like that as equals really. That sounds fantastic Um, and do you feel like it makes me feel more um, confident and secure somehow to to hear that? Yeah well I think one of the surprising things about my work and just got sort of getting involved in Cornish language generally is you think oh okay not many people speak this language it's we're just a few thousand but I've met people from around the world through that language um it's not just Cornish speakers I meet other Celtic language speakers uh speakers of minority languages so it's for me it's just really opened all sorts of doors to to meeting people from around the world and who and people from communities who've gone through similar things as well so you've got quite a um like a cut through or quite an instant connection then with uh people from say the sami community in lapland at first sight is something quite different but actually their experiences are quite similar so it's yeah it's really interesting to meet those cultures yeah cool and um well paul you're a you're a, a fluid Cornish speaker, Canuic speaker, aren't you? Uh, yeah, queer, me old Kaisal Canuic in Fraith. Um, Ohatha around Kaisal Canuic. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I go Greg in Weth, so um, oh, I go in Weth. Reggie Dim Laverell, me the old Berry Rag Golden Tree Productions. I go Troethia, me around Kaisal Gans Will Coleman in Canuic Rag Europe Day. Um, so what I've just said there. Um, is yes, I'm a fluent speaker. So is my cat. Um, uh, I'm lucky that my wife's a Cornish speaker as well. Um, so we speak a bit of Cornish at home. And I work um, as the Cornish language officer for Golden Tree Productions. 
uh, and that means that I'm able to talk Cornish for an hour or two in work with my boss, Will Coleman. That sounds great. <laughs> I'd, I, I really want to meet your cat now. Um, uh, and Jennifer, do you, do you speak Cornish also? Yes, I'm also a speaker and I've worked with Cornish for a number of years. Uh, so uh, I started learning when I was a teenager, so that's been all my life, really. Oh, great. And is that a thing, like, within the Gorseth? Like, I've always known about the Gorseth, but, um, like, from a teenager, really, I found out about it. But it also seemed like some sort of mystical thing that's just a bit distant. Um, so is, is it a thing that all bards speak Cornish? I would like to pick that one up, please. Um... No, they don't. Uh, we have language bards, but we have bards that are experts in music, uh, dialect, um, visual arts, um, the full full gamut, really. Um, and obviously, not all of them use Kurnuic in, in their artistic endeavours. I'm going to have to meet the um, visual art bard, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and... You mentioned dialect there, and that was a question I was going to bring up. Um, what what do you think about the differences or the importance of dialect and language to and how they connect to identity, I suppose? Um, well, certainly with the Gorseth, we have separate awards for them, uh, but in mainstream funding thing of the arts, there's very little money for Cornish language. There's no money for Cornish dialects. So it all just tends to be ghetto-wise is, oh, that Cornish stuff. Um, so you get a lot of funders or, or English people generally don't understand the difference between English and dialect. So, um, I don't know. Can you speak a bit of... Speak broad for a little bit so people can understand the difference? <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> no, I can't. He can, my answer. But um, it always feels a bit false when somebody asks you to talk in their dialect. And mm. it feels like, to me, it just feels like something I talk with my family. But then I, you know, I went away for a long time. But even before I went away, uh, people at school would sort of laugh if you said something uh, with, the, you know, with a strong accent or something. And over time, you sort of think, well, OK, I just want to get my point made. So you kind of moderate it. Um, but so I think it's a real shame for me personally that you know, like here now, I'm not speaking with that accent. But um, we well, to work for the council. Yeah, I'm all he, posh because of that. He'd yeah. loud speak. He'd <laughs> speak fit. He'd work for the council. Didn't allow. No. No. Uh, <laughs> but um, but I I think it's a shame that there's a bit of a split between that that dialect and the the language where you know people. Um, it tends to be people who've got an education and are able to go and learn the language, whereas sort of, you know, other other people who sort of feel daunted by learning a language might have the dialect. And um, it'd be great if we could bring the two together more. Um, I'd it, find that really exciting. I mean, it's it's the Golden Tree Productions project mm. of taking language into schools is really important and exciting. Oh, thank you very much. And, um, I mean, I can remember petitioning the council about that, you know, in, again, early 90s sort of time. And um, a, 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 a fear or a bit of feedback I, got, I, I had at that time was, well, it might, it, tourists might not like it. They won't understand things. Well, yeah, and I think that, I think for me it's really, that it's only every, we're guilty of it ourselves. We only use it for humour, you know, for, um, like, family or friends and stuff. And you don't hear it being used in the news. And I think there was that example of Birmingham when they had their new trams and they, they had a nice posh, you know, Queen's English announcements and they all reacted against it and got a nice Brummie accent on their tram announcements. You never, you never hear that kind of thing happening here. All our announcements should be with our accents, really. So you hear it in different contexts rather than just dialect stories, really. I mean, the, the interesting thing, too, is I mean, when I've had students who are older students, and several years ago particularly, elderly people who were um, learning Cornish but who had strong dialect, and then the... the, the um, 
similarities or where language went into dialect becomes really, really obvious. And they get incredibly excited at finding that the words they've used all of their lives actually come from the language. And you don't find it so much now because the generations are losing it. But back in the in the 80s in particular, I remember um, sort of elderly, uh, a couple of elderly ladies, oh, well, I shouldn't say that, it's probably about my age now, but anyway, <laughs> at that point, uh, from St Ives, who were, um, and and it was it was, it was was really interesting to teach that little group because they all had strong dialect. And the other thing, your point about tourists, we did actually, back in, oh gosh, I think about 2012 or something, there was a, uh, the tourist board actually put something, managed to squeeze a couple of questions into their survey of tourists about what they thought about language. Um, and Cornish culture generally. And it was a really positive response, um, which should have really helped. I'm not sure it was really um, taken up that much, but the, the but it was it was interest and you know, would you like to learn a few words? Yes. And it was it was a, sort of something that could do with being uh, looked at a bit more. I um I started learning Cornish um a good old while ago now, and I, I'm certainly not a great speaker. But um, what I really noticed, the thing that was quite a sort of watershed sort of moment um, was that as soon as we started learning it, the, the, the kind of rhythm, the cadence of it, the, the structure of the sentences, they just all made sense in a way that I'd never, like... I'm also not a very good speaker of German and French, but I've got GCSEs. In them. But um, I'd never had that experience in trying to learn a language before, that it just felt, I don't know, like it fit, there was a fit. That's probably because you're a Cornish person, uh, and so you will pick up those hooks that are in dialect, mm -hmm. um, the hooks in the place names. Mm. Uh, and there are certain phonetics that certain sounds that are common, like a long, nice long E, common to the language and common to the, the dialect. Uh, so it'll be easy, you, you will pick up those things. Um, and if you get somebody with a nice broad accent and they actually learn Cornuic to a level of fluency, um, it would just sound nice. But was it you that said it's like a half-remembered language for us? We sort of think we've forgotten it, but actually... Because of what, like you're saying, that the rhythm and the way we speak, the place names, somebody said it's like a half-remembered language. So there's like a in the sort of muscle memory. Uh, or something. Well, mm. we're just used to these, you know, these places like um, Rosudgen, Tregovathen, all these sort of long names that tumble out of our mouths, and we're used to saying them without further thought. Um, that if I was to learn Korean. It would be completely fresh, whereas actually we've got this inbuilt memory of bits of the language. We just can't string a sentence together. And that, for me, was the revelation. I just went to my first Cornish class, wanted to say I could say, tell the time or something. And hearing it spoken was just such a revelation. It hadn't occurred to me it could be used that way. And, um, yeah, so it was sort of that unravelling for me of... I wanted to learn it, but just hadn't heard it spoken, and it really, quite an emotional reaction to it, really. When when did you hear proper Cornish language for the first time? For the first time, perhaps bits in the 80s, but but properly, it was when I went to the London class uh, in, oh, it was after the Ordinalius in 2005. I'm interested in your thoughts on the connection of language and identity and the importance of language to retaining cultural identity or perhaps setting parameters for it. So the reason I ask this is I hear, you know, it's not uncommon that I might hear, oh, well, the Cornish language has been rebuilt, um, like in the late 19th, early 20th century. And so therefore it's almost invented and it seems to me like what we're touching on here... Oh, not that tired old <laughs> chestnut. I know, but people still say it a lot. That every, it, every language spoken today is, is invented to, to some, some extent. You know, words like computer, internet, website, they've been invented in the English language. Um, we, we, we've invented things like 
Ginamontia, Kez Rawlsworth, Guiazva. Um, so we invented those words uh, just as much as the English uh, or peoples in, or the Anglosphere um, invented words for technological things anyway. Um, it's just a marker that Cornish is a living language. Yeah, that seems to make sense. And then, so to think about the connection of it to one's cultural identity, identity. I mean it feels really important to me as part of my identity that it exists and that I can say the occasional word I can sign off an email or greet someone or something. Does anyone have any thoughts on that the importance of I mean you must have come across this mark with the Indyland project. Well yeah but actually you saying that I was more thinking about you know like people in my family um, I had builders helping out on the house and they sort of None of them speak Cornish, but they have that knowledge of it. And their first reaction is, oh, I, I don't speak Cornish, so it's like an other thing to them. But then let them speak a bit longer, and they're really attached to it, and they really see it as quite important to their Cornishness. And um, they wouldn't probably put it into words that they value uh, what the Cornish language community is doing. But if it was taken away, they'd be really mm. up in arms, you know. They'd, they'd definitely see it as such a feature of Cornwall and theirs. Mm -hmm. I really, um, I kind of shared some of the experience you described, Mark, of um, having lived and worked away and finding that you needed to change or shift your language. And like, um, it just happens automatically. That's what I found. Um, and there is a little grief there in that. Well, I think... You know, I could see that happening to other people when I lived in London. So mm -hmm. it wasn't that wasn't specific Cornish. What I find upsetting is coming home and finding that same experience here. And you know that well, one example I was out with friends, you know, in the pub, and sort of oh, you can't say that. I can't, you know. I think I just said, "Oh, where is he too?" It wasn't anything that upsetting, and it was like you can't talk like that if you're an educated person, and. Mm. Um, it's quite deeply ingrained. It's just yeah, it's not healthy. What do you, what Jennifer? Are you a sort of sounded like you were agreeing then? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a change here too. That it's become because it's the dialect has tended to disappear. It's become uh, or, or weaken maybe that it's become less common, and therefore it's it it is and and it happens with with in many places with dialect in particular um, and language to a certain extent that it gets seen as, um, because it's minority, you need the majority language, you need the majority way of speaking in order to advance, and therefore it's seen as something um, that will hold you back originally, and that's part of the decline of languages, is when minority language, when they seem to be um, uh, not, not an asset, and if anything, the opposite. And I think that's turned around an awful lot, and you look at a lot of language communities where the, the language in particular has become more of an asset and to a certain extent the dialect I'm not sure we're quite there yet here but um, but it is important the other thing is that languages actually reflect the land and the culture and the environment that they come from you know that the the numbers of words you have for particular things reflects the culture um, so you know there's a big emphasis of, there's lots of words for for country or parts of country and so on in, in Cornish in the same way as another um, you know, the, the old adage is that the Eskimos have 26 words for snow. You know, it's that sort of thing, that the, that the, the language and the culture are inextricably mixed. It mirrors the culture. A part of culture, of course, is, is history and something that all Cornish people, uh, whether they speak dialect or not, whether they speak Kernoic or not, is a sort of PTSD from the historical trauma of... Um, what went on in the prayer book rebellion because um, we, we we basically most of Cornwall was Cornish speaking it had, it had Cornish as its um, mother tongue um, basically all west um, of Bodmin uh, and the southern edges of Bodmin Moor and one or two spots in North Cornwall and that was wiped out overnight and everyone forced to learn English uh, and that sort of um, trauma is is sort of keenly felt um 
by everybody. We all we all speak English now, um, but we the majority of us used to speak Kurnuic, uh, and and the changes around that um, that's had some kind of effect. It's, it's sort of a, a shock uh, on 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 the, on the Cornish psyche, and and that's something experienced by all people, no matter what they speak. It's interesting how different communities deal with um, re reviving languages. Or oh, there's also a term actually that's applied a lot to um, in these days now bilinguists to um, particularly Aboriginal languages and Native American languages reawakening. In other words, languages that have been dormant for a while, which is a much nicer term really, or reawakening something which is really um, important and a part of your your past. But there are there are very. I was talking uh, a few years ago to somebody from one of the, and I can't remember which one of the um, uh, First Nation Native American um, languages, who said that their problem was that, although the language had been passed down to a certain extent, and there were still a number of speakers, um, it was seen as something really precious and ceremonial. Therefore, the speakers, the, the the last speakers of the language, were really anti it being used for everyday life. So that their their way of, they were reviving it against the odds in a way because their feeling was it was this precious thing that they, that shouldn't be sullied by using it to go down the shop and <coughs> buy a pint of you know or mm. go to the pub and buy a pint of beer. Um, whereas I think you know we would say our aim would be to to make it the, the you know your your normal everyday language. I've, so the different attitudes according to your history, I think. I think that was very true of the early days of the Gorseth. Yes. Um, that yes. Uh, Cornish was used exclusively in the ceremonies of the Gorseth, but not in everyday life. Um, when our reawakening happened, it, it's debatable, but I would probably place it around about the 70s. Um, formation of Quethers and Yaith, um, newly formed. Cornish Language Board, the Kesva. I, I think they're different stages because I mean, if, if because you you know your revival's going back to the early twentieth century, well, late nineteenth century, really, the seeds of it. Um, so it's just, but we, not as a, a process, not, not as a community language. No, community language. You, yeah, yeah, probably looking from the seventies on. But was it was it hearing it sung that I don't know? I just get the impression hearing it sung, particularly like by Brenda Wooden, that then you're starting to lose that purely ceremonial thing it's starting to be more of a social thing and then did that feed down into it becoming into more of a sort of everyday social language I don't know um quite quite possibly but um Brenda Wooten was a bard and the all the Cornish songs were written by Richard Gendel also a bard uh so um it, it, it's quite interesting they, they were instrumental in in re reawakening Kunuik as a community language. I think it's partly about critical mass too. The interest in it, when the interest grows to a certain amount, then you've got enough um, people that aren't isolate, so isolated from each other to actually start speaking. And there were children being talked to in, in the 70s. And the music revival was going alongside the language revival. So I think there was a bit of a uh, touch paper point mm. at then um, because you actually had enough people to make that start to become a reality. It's interesting what you say about that, talking about, um, you know, the preciousness, keeping the language just for precious moments or um, using it for the everyday and um, just sort of connecting that to more contemporary politics, I suppose, that we've been going through this experience of a sort of protectionist populist um, set of um, attitudes within politics and um, that does that actually begin to um, sort of suffocate suffocate culture and suffocate things rather than <clears throat> allowing something to be mundane I mean I often say I think wondrous things are within the mundane they're not on a plinth um, so if someone were to say hello to me in Kanuik in a, in a shop, I would be like, that, that's marvellous. And particularly if it wasn't a tourist shop selling a cushion with pole dark on it. But, um, yeah, just, I don't know, a laundrette or whatever. I think that, for me, was the unexpected thing about learning Cornish. I sort of had 
seen it as okay this is important to me as a Cornish person but actually I think the exciting thing about it is that actually you meet people who want to do new things with it so mm -hmm. like films songs music all sorts of things and you just think oh this is actually it's not just keeping mm -hmm. our heritage it's actually creating new culture and you just don't know where it's going to go and that's I find that really exciting and invigorating um, and maybe there's something in that as well around um again connecting to how social at attitudes are changing so rather than a sort of top-down direction oh those poor people won't be able to understand this so we'll we'll do it this way um kind of trusting audiences to um as you say kind of just enjoy the sound and familiarize themselves mm. with the sound and the cadence of it and slowly the language be just becomes more commonplace it is it's about returning the language to the people mm. basically because language is only owned by its speakers you know it's it's not nobody owns a language it's 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 in the mouths of speakers and it will change and it will develop and it should do otherwise it's not living yeah, absolutely but to achieve that to get it back to the people you have to overcome several centralist imperialistic mm. forces um government going to say could you say a bit more about that Paul so do you do you mean that you you need to well one needs to work within the structures of of something um, that isn't yours um, it, it's sort of difficult to explain uh, Cornish has been recognized under the European Charter of Regional Minority Languages um, sorry for using the e-word <laughs> to uh, all our Brexit fans out there um, uh, but it's also as a place under the Framework Convention for the Protection of National Minorities um, as well. Now, although the UK government ratified these Council of Europe charters, that's Council of Europe, not European Union, um, the, the, the thing is, is they've dragged their heels. Um, there's no central government funding for the Cornish language. So uh, when we go and see our, our, our Celtic brothers and sisters in, say, Wales, um, they have a fantastic amount of sort of resources and stuff. Um, so the very act of speaking Cornish, is it's almost like um, you're manifesting a sort of independent spirit, um, and that attracts a lot of people. Um, but the, the the forces of imperialism, English imperialism, are huge. I think it's how you create the opportunities within existing systems so that the language is seen um, is va with the same intrinsic value as other languages and as the majority language, and it's the ability to do that which 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 helps. Um, because that, when you can raise the the value in people's eyes, the perceived value in people's eyes and give the opportunities for them to simply come across it and not have to... It's not somewhere in a box that you've got to go and unlock, but it's around you. That's when it starts to be um, owned again by people. Mm. I, I, I had a funny experience. I went to see um, Rammstein in, in Munich, and I found myself chanting Deutschland, Deutschland, with um, 50,000 other Germans. Uh, having having just eaten um, a large sausage in a in a bit of bread, um, <laughs> it's that sort of collective, um, <laughs> you know. No. No. no, no. <laughs> it, 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 it's something. It's it's a similar feeling you get when 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 we sing "Bro Goth" at the end of a Gorset. Mm -hmm. uh, it's that sort of collectivism, realizing you're not alone. Um, I can't think of anything more lonely than. Learning a minority language in a bedsit. I'm <laughs> reading a poem. Uh, yeah, yeah read I, ho I hope lots of people are learning it. In <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, in, 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 in an English city that doesn't have uh, enough people for a yath in wearing. Um, mm. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I think it's written in the Bible, isn't it? Man does not live by Zoom alone. <laughs> Thinking about you mentioned about Celtic brothers and sisters. Um, could you mention something about that that connection of the Celtic nations? I mean, again, 
it's something I've always felt really strongly, but then um, learnt, was told about the sort of Celtic revivalists after I'd already been feeling Celtic just, just because, you know, I grew up in, in Cornwall and, and that's how people spoke then. Well, I think that's something that is you really powerfully feel when you go to Brittany or if you go to Wales or Isle of Man, partly the reception you get from the people there, they're really, you know, they're just so excited and appreciate, you know, meeting people from Cornwall as fellow Celtic, um, you know, uh, citizens. But um, but also, you know, you sort of, you see, okay, particularly in Wales and Brittany, you see the place names, you see very similar things. Um, and... Yeah, I think it's it to me it feels most powerful when you go there, and it's a shame more uh, young people don't have that opportunity yeah. to go um, and take part in inter-Celtic things because there is there is that shared that shared identity and everything. Once you experience it, unfortunately, we just don't have enough opportunities here in Cornwall to experience it directly. Really, um, point of information: the Celtic countries are Scotland, Ireland. Isle of Man, Wales, Brittany, and Cornwall. Bit uh, of information there, really. <laughs> Thank uh, you, Paul. Um, um, but we've got, we've got things like the the Celtic Congress, which was formed in 1904. Uh, we have um, the Celtic Media Festival. Um, we have the Celtic League. Um, there's lots of festivals around, including our own brilliant. Uh, Lowenda Perrin, which for ordinary people I th in Cornwall, I, I think that's the first sort of, maybe the first step of having the whole pack together. I think things like that are more important to me than mm. those organised structures because yeah. that yeah. doesn't that that means something to us who know about it. But it's things like Lowenda Perrin. There used to be an inter-Celtic water sports water sports festival, uh, festival yeah. things like that where you're bringing people, you know people together that aren't going to go to committee meetings but will sort of take part in music dance sports and things and um and then you get a real appreciation of, okay it's not just us sort of following something local it is celtic it's also interesting if you take i mean i've taken i take performers and so on over to the big intercultic festival in Brittany every year and also the pan celtic when you take a young band or a young group of dancers or whatever over um, and they are on a stage alongside Wales, Brittany, Scotland, etc. The, the effect in terms of the confidence in their own culture and actually it, it validates what they're doing and what they feel at home and they bring that back with them. And it's a real experience and it's, it's a lovely thing to watch actually that, you know, that they, how much they gain from that interaction with other Celtic nations. Can I ask you, um, just to clarify, that's really positive to hear, um, Jennifer, but I, I just wanted to ask a clarifying point. My understanding was that um, Galicia or other parts of northern Spain had been sort of welcomed into the Celtic nation's family. Um, it de well, yes, that depends on a standpoint. I mean, the, the, the Lorient Festival includes uh, Galician and Asturias, who both consider themselves Celtic. The the the, Celt the core Celtic countries that that um, that Paul was describing all have speak a Celtic language. Um, Galicia and Asturias do not. They have their own um, own languages, which are dialects of Spanish to to a greater or lesser um, extent. Mm -hmm. They share some cultural links in terms of well, certainly in terms of prehistory, but then. You know, actually, so does a lot of Europe, really, Celtic originally, um, and and traditions around bagpipes, etc. They were welcomed in, um, particularly to Lorient, um, spectacular, and 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 simply because they felt that way. Uh, so, if you're purist about it, you will tend to stick with the the six core countries, um, but Galician Asturias certainly themselves feel very strongly. Um, so okay, I, I, think, I, think, I think the thing is um, that Cornwall wasn't considered a Celtic country uh, until 1904 when we were actually let into the Celtic Congress. Uh, Henry, Henry Jenner published a handbook of the Cornish language 
and he went to Brittany to Les Nevin and made a speech in Cornish and loads of Bretons ran up to him and said, oh, we understood that. Uh, and that all happened in 1904. And then after that, we were considered a, a, a Celtic country. But we're, we're going back to that, that language thing again. So um, I'm, not, I'm not being purists about it, but, um, no, in, but in modern yeah. times, um, the Celts really know how to have a party. <laughs> and we, we, we produce some of the most astonishing art in every media known uh, and there's a lot of people that say oh yeah well you know we'd love to belong to that celtic family uh it's, it's a really strange thing i don't understand why there's not like a, a germanic festival where the english get together with the dutch and the germans and I don't know, roast meat and drink <laughs> beer. I mean, I, 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 I think may, maybe parts of um, my identity considered English might um, might be dusted off if I could uh, join in <laughs> such a Germanic festival. Uh, but, but, I mean, that's all hypothetical. The, the, the fact is that there, there are brilliant inter-Celtic festivals uh, mm. all over. And um, just thinking about that as well, <laughs> and thinking about these dates, etc. Again, I, you know, I hear it in, I hear it in Falmouth. I also work as a plumber, so um, I go in, I go into people's homes and just get chatting. And um, it's really common that people might say, "Yeah, but it's not really an authentic cultural identity, is it? Like, how can you e evidence that?" Um, what, what's your view on that? I mean, I can almost guess, but for the sake, <laughs> for the sake of our conversation about this notion of authenticity, um, well, I would say for a start, actually, if you look at commentators from Karoo onwards and and probably before that, um, that the notion of 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 Cornwall as um, and in, as, as, a, as a country, as a nation, was there very early on. I, you know, you look at your charters, Tudor times, it was sort of England, Scotland, Wales and Cornwall. Um, so there's obviously a notion there. And, and right through the history and the commentators all the way through comment on the, 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 um, the sense of identity, the sense of foreignness if they're writing from an English perspective, the sense of otherness of Cornwall. So I think it's always been there and you can see that reflected in all of those commentaries from writers both internal and external um, for the last 500 years. So I think there's that side to it. And then there's simply that sort of intrinsic feeling. You, you, you come into sort of ethnicity and issues around chosen ethnicity too, that you know people well, feel that that sense of kinship and... and um, attachment to this piece of land and stronger than that i kind of feel cheated as well mm. um because i to, to flip the question really um i felt partly the ordinalia when that was performed mm. in what 2002 to 2005 and i think you know people in, like my mum and my dad went to see it and started talking about, well, there were these plays written in Cornish. So that really changed my perception about what the language was about. Then learning the language and finding out there were more plays, there was literature, there was a mm. culture. Mm. And actually, we, weren't, we were never told about any of this. So rather than being challenged that, mm. is this authentic, is actually nobody told me about that this authentic her heritage and history. Um, and that whole narrative is very much taught from... You know, the English perspective, and it's our, it's us that need to reclaim that and be confident to to say yes, it is authentic and it's very rich. And oh. that's that's something you actually hear from a lot of a lot of people, and I think a lot of people feel that. And you also get particularly that I never had the chance to hmm. explore that, but I want my children and my grandchildren hmm. do because it is that sense of of having lost something hmm. and needing to. It's sort of through a glass darkly, you know, you see hmm. bits of it and want it back. I think Mark's use of the word cheated is is mm. is, is very relevant and and, and, and pertinent. Um, absolutely, um, it, it is cheated. Um, we, it's not a case of responding to people that tell you that your culture and the way you live is somehow 
not authentic or, or, or any kind of nonsense like that. It, it just exists. Um, you know, um, Cornish, Cornish language, Cornish identity, Cornish history, Cornish politics exists. Get over it. <laughs> the interesting thing to me is, is when people seem to feel threatened by that. Mm. Um, I, I, why? It's as if you're challenging a, a status quo or a frame of reference they have in their heads that then says, we don't like this and we're threatened by it. And it, I've always found it really strange when people seem to be extremely anti or against and dismissive of Cornish culture, Cornish language, and take that view that almost, as I say, almost as if they're threatened by it. Mm -hmm. Well, the elephant in the room, again, is English imperialism, which, which you know, uh, with BBC spotlight, Southwest, um, you know, the the English stuff is rammed down your throat every time. You know, there's a de facto ban on Cornish language at, at, at BBC Spotlight. Um, I'll give an example of that. But people have been given interviews and they've put the odd word of Cornish in the middle of something and they've been asked to repeat the segment without the Cornish. Um, That's fascinating. But I, but I think that's that, fascism. Well, <laughs> yeah. always. That's too strong. I think actually, <laughs> most people just don't know how to deal with it. It's mm. not just Cornish. You don't you don't hear uh, Welsh speak, being spoken on mainstream, mm. you know, BBC or anything, and you don't hear you know um, Tamil or you know immigrant languages either. And I just mm. don't think. Britain is set up to deal with other languages, really. Well, there, there, there again, there's an argument there. Britain. Mm. Um, do you mean the United Kingdom or do you mean Britain? Well, either, because I, what I do mean <laughs> is that we need... I think we're getting better at being more confident and being more positive about what we're about and actually saying this is this is how we want to present ourselves. And I think that's part of the... the you know, for me, that's really important to be able to say look, we've got these things. I don't think people are really interested in other people's histories, i.e. ours, but they might be more willing to engage with, you know, new things that we're doing, different stories. It, it's always that human story that people can click with easier than a challenge to your whole identity. Um, but, so, yeah, I'm interested in how do you actually, rather than get, the BBC to show a few words on a news clip, how do we get whole programmes on the BBC, Tom, from our perspective? Well, it, it, it's a strange thing, Cornwall, isn't it? Um, it's different in terms of its constitutional position uh, in, in that our head of state is the Duke of Cornwall, not Her Majesty the Queen. Um, and, I don't know, millions of pounds go into the Duchy of Cornwall every year. But at the same time, we don't have a team in the Commonwealth Games, you know. So we're, we're, we're I don't, I. It it just seems one one minute we're a shire county when it suits the powers that be, and and the next we're something something different. But we're always on the losing end of it. Um, just look at the, well, there's lot lots of things. Uh, Everyone says, oh, Cor if you talk to anybody around the UK and they say, oh, Cornwall's a lovely part of the world, why haven't we got any national parks? If it's lovely, why haven't we got any national parks? Not lovely enough to have those. Um, the, the, the way they're run or whether you'd want them or not is irrelevant. The fact that we don't have them, even though everyone agrees that there are bits of Cornwall that are very beautiful. Right. Um, other, other things like um, prisons. I know this is a, maybe a bit left of field, uh, there are three prisons in Devon uh, and there's none in Cornwall. And uh, having, you know, uh, if, if your life goes... If, if, no, if your life goes off the rails and you, act being, you get sent to prison doing custodial time, people in Cornwall suffer twice, once for the sentence and once for uh, having a complete cut-off from, from support from friends and family. I, I I agree. Things like that are important, but I don't. I don't. I think you could sort of say, you could still just be a county of England and argue that services like that, hospitals, prisons, whatever, should be local. But I don't really see that that's 
doing anything to change our constitutional status. Mm-hmm. For me, that's that should need to be grounded on our culture, our identity, and actually saying there's particular things here that are different that are not being fully recognised, and actually we want we want those put in place. And um, I think it's really interesting seeing what's happened in Wales. You know, if you went back 20, 30 years, they didn't have mm-hmm. that confidence, that swagger that they have now. And it's... it's so it are, you, seems... are you suggesting we do like the Welsh did? No, <laughs> Paul. What, well, the element that I am suggesting ways. we do, it's the I think they've been very clever in using media to project their culture and create all sorts of opportunities. So if you're a young person in Wales now, it's not like... What learning Welsh is pointless. I know not all everybody wants to learn Welsh, but there is a point to learning Welsh because you can get a job, you can be, take part in those industries mm-hmm. and be a part of further projecting that. And I, I just think it's something that's inclusive. It you can see there's a future for it. It can grow and do all sorts of things. And um, yeah, I, I, you can see that there's potential for that here. But our culture is repressed, and we have lack of services. In, in education, prison service, health service. We've only got one general hospital. Uh, when the, and I, I think all of those things are linked in that we don't have any a very low degree of self-determination. Things are done to us. Uh, and that includes media and culture as, as well. Well, that, that's, that's true. But then I think that's... Um that's not just us, and I think it's been, if you look at, there's a really interesting... Well, certainly not, no. You, you know, and, and it's really interesting just watching, as Mark says, Wales, same with Scotland and Ireland before that, about how they have, A, changed perceptions of the country from outside, and by the way in which they presented themselves, and also given confidence to, to young people and got young people involved in the debate. And I think that's, that you know, we need to look at those for... In, in terms of how that's how that's worked, because it's it's it is quite stark over the last mm. uh, ten twenty years. And that I mean, it seems to me like well, um, I I love a murder mystery, and um, Wales has got some fabulous uh, crime dramas mm. that really sort of show off the landscape. I'm, I'm not sure if we should have things showing off the landscape, but just thinking, like, they compete with those Scandi noir kind of stuff, and um, they come across as intelligent, they deal with tough issues that re- that do affect people's lives, like, yeah, needing to go to prison or certain medical situations, isolation, gender, sexuality. Um, they, they encompass a whole host of things, Whereas um, the programmes we have, for instance, around Cornwall, I mean, I can remember when Wycliffe was on telly and uh, then, of course, Dr Martin. I mean, neither of those really had any interest for me at all. It was so just vastly disappointing. Um, so it's often being presented as um, a cosier place. But that's because that's being that's being done by companies outside. The difference is that the Welsh those Welsh productions are being produced from within Wales, um, with with the attitudes that they wish to put there and coming out of Welsh culture and Welsh experience. They're not uh, a company coming in and doing it to Wales, which is what has tended to happen if you look at. Um, mainstream productions like Wycliffe and Dr. Martin. That's what I mean about stereotypes. It's about changing how you're seen and and dismantling those stereotypes. Um, And you can only do that from within. And part of that is actually, I mean, Wales has built up its film culture and and we've improved ours Mm. quite considerably. Indigenous culture, indigenous film provision, if you like, um, and and media. But they also have the ability to to do that and influence it um, and and put the... the, um, uh, enticements there as well and, and we know that we've got fantastic writers we always have done we're mm. really good at telling stories um and we at the same time we know that there's that interest from around the world because we've got all those lifestyle programs things like doc martin that shows that people love things set here but we just don't get to tell our stories you know in film and tv enough um so that you know i just think that's 
you've got a very powerful opportunity there. You've and got that's talent where here. We like you can't talk about this without mentioning Bates mm. and how mm. well that mm. was mm. received exactly. globally mm. and did demonstrate the kind of um, the, the the rougher around the edges, you know, aspects mm. that I an awful lot of I would say almost the majority of Cornish people or people who may not identify as Cornish but have lived here for a very long time, maybe schools here, can relate to a lot more than um, just pasties and cream, not to knock mm. Brenda. So. And that's coming off, and that's independent productions, independent shorts, and then working through film festivals and things, rather than the broadcast media, and that's why the push around Cornish TV and Cornish broadcasting, because the difference is that those sort of productions would be broadcast where there's a possibility within, say, Wales or Scotland and then be maybe networked out. We don't have that to start with. So mm. so the opportunities and therefore the way of generating the returns on those is not there to enable the bigger productions to happen from within Cornwall. But having, having said that, um, we've got a brilliant independent film sector mm. and we've always punched above our weight um, and won quite a few prizes at the uh, Celtic Media Festival. Mm. But it's but it's quite but the, the the audience for that or the ability to get that out to a wide audience is is different. Yeah. That's that's the thing. And and like you say, getting getting the income from that. That's yeah. that's all commissioned yeah. you know, and broadcast in other places and that that's the bit where we've we've not got the industry. It's still that mm. that extraction really of our our creativity yeah. so you're, you're saying our creativity is mined yes. and taken away <laughs> just as much as um tin and copper yeah i mean that's my that, that's one of my sort of pivots around tourism and the tourist industry um that it is an extraction industry um paul jennifer g what do you do you have any thoughts on that uh, um the tourist industry is just completely out of control at the moment. It's a very, very complex issue. Uh, Airbnb, um, small hotels, pop-up campsites are not the same thing. Um, it's it just completely... It, it's, a, it's a bit like a gold rush out, out in the Yukon at the, at the, at the moment. There's, there's very little rules, very little regulation... Um, um, and it's a very complex issue. Um, like, like I say, um, a small hotel um, is not the same um, as a pop-up campsite. I mean, I, w I see where you're coming from, and I would agree with you on the extraction. I think part of that is that the, um, uh, the, the emphasis on tourism, which when you actually look at the figures, is only 11 or 12% of GDP. It's not the major industry, but it has a disproportionate effect on on um, all other industries because of the problems that it does, um, because it's out of balance, perhaps. It's, we've always had tourism, and tourism's an important part of the economy, but it's, it's, it feels like it's, it's out of balance. The investment being mainly into tourism isn't, doesn't give us the kind of um, working structure and jobs that allow our young people to stay either, so you've got that continual move out. Which is not a bad thing if they can come back again. It's always good to go away and get experience and all the rest of it. But it's it's sort of, and we've all done it. Um, but we're not we're not providing the opportunities, and there is a prevailing view of um, tourism as being the only and the the major um, important industry for Cornwall, which is 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 not correct, but is fueled by. Mainstream media, Milder. and it means that your investment isn't going into the areas it should yeah. be going into to balance the economy. It, it, it's also a very unevenly spread. Um, I, I, I come from Troon near Camburn. Um, funnily enough, we don't we don't have um, many uh, sort of <laughs> rows of second homes and stuff in the middle of Camburn. Yeah, give it five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Starting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, but there, there are other places on the coast which have had their community completely devastated, uh, up up to 75% of, of, of houses in places like um, Crantock are, sec are second homes. They're, they're just holiday lets. 
uh, so you get the thing where um, families can't live there, the school dies, uh, mm. and completely devastated. And at the same time, you've only got to move a little bit inland, and all of that sort of wealth and opportunity or whatever it j- just it just it isn't isn't there but it still pushes price house prices up mm. and everything so mm. there are knock-on effects right through cornwall now um i mean i i feel torn about the issue because i just think it is a problem that's experienced in lots of places and mm. i think it's you know the nature of tourism in the 20th 21st century has changed and i go on holiday i'm equally part of the problems and to other communities and yeah, but um, if, you, if you look at other communities in in Wales, they're talking about a three hundred percent increase. So there's things on, you on, can on do second proper, and that's on second properties. That, for me, that's more <laughs> of the thing. You, we're always going to be a destination. We're lucky enough to live in a beautiful place, and that's part of it that people mm. want to come here. I don't think we're very good at managing and actually trying to, yeah, uh, either tax second homes. I would personally favour some sort of congestion charge because uh, I think a mm. lot of the impacts are from transport and on services um, there's other things but you know those yeah those but there's lots of ways if you actually look, look look outside at something like the Lake District I mean um, the bulk of their tourism actually occurs within a national park again mm. uh, and so they have control they, they can sort of um, regulate it well only up to a point I mean I, I, I think it is becoming um, it's, it's not just Cornwall, it's not just Wales, it's now percolating a lot of other areas. And, and for that reason, there's more notice being taken of it. But the problem is you need the control and the planning control to be able to ensure that the balance is there. So, so you, know, you used the word I didn't understand there in Cornwall. Planning? Is, there a <laughs> um, because is there such a thing? You know, there, had, there have been moves and there have been ideas in Cornwall about having, uh, for instance, having to have change of use to take a home out of residential mm. use into either a second home or a holiday let. So you could at least cap within communities. But that requires legislative change. That's not within our power, and that's part of the problem. Um, you need more local control in order to be able to, to, to do that. Um, and you need to actually have uh, a degree of, um, a greater degree of transparency around the figures and the benefits and the losses. Um, because the, so that, the importance of it and how far it's out of balance and what you can do is understood more widely and that's not there either so you, are you calling for more control i would have said more control but also more data i think there's you know i, I was meeting yesterday talking about this that it, it basically you, you we we need that the messages that go out all the time is we have we must depend on tourism um and the actual levels of um of of second homes the levels of holiday lets the levels of of property and empty properties and so on are not well understood generally because no. the figures are not out there but I, I think there's a recognition that like over the last couple of summers there's been oh, too much and definitely. actually it's more yeah. that it's you know the spring and autumn where actually you might sustain those businesses a bit you know a bit more through the year the shoulder months them mm-hmm. yeah but um i suppose the in terms of today's discussion i it, it's interesting looking at Ireland, where you go there and you'd expect to go to a lovely pub, have a Guinness, see some Irish dancing yeah. and stuff. That's something yeah. that we completely, yeah. you know, that is just people come here for the beaches, maybe for the Doc Martin, you know, tour or whatever. And it does feel like that's something that I would like to see us work on to sort of say, you know, you're coming here to a very different place. And I think, like we you mentioned the 2012 survey mm. where... Um, people did see the language, the place names. I think it was what eighty, ninety percent of people saw that as part of the experience. And um, yeah, I, you sometimes get asked, "Or oh, where can I see the Cornish language?" <laughs> and I don't know how you do that, but we don't even have a shop or a cafe, or there is one in cafe in Newquay. Um, more of that kind of thing where people could experience our culture and that's that and that's learning from elsewhere because Mm. that is that cultural tourism is 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 important it actually fulfills i mean it's also tends to be year-round rather than focused in the summer but actually being able to make that the experience so the cultures acknowledged Mm. outside Mm. is is, would be really really important and i think that's part of the threat i mean obviously it's the numbers the physical impact of tourism but it's also that 
that sense that you know uh, you're losing things because mm. it's a sort of international kind of yeah. tourism that you could be anywhere kind of thing going on. Yeah. Um, whereas actually, if part of the visit is more clearly that you're going to this different place, I think that would be helpful, positive. Does that not? Um, <clears throat> there's something around that that um, concerns me around the. Um, uh, the chocolate boxing of yeah. culture. Commodification mm. of culture. Yeah. Yes, quite. Yeah. So yeah. Um, if we make that the culture is part of the destination, yes, it that does seem to be sensible. However, yeah, do, does the culture get um, sort of watered down to an extent or made a bit more palatable? Mm. I, I don't mean like going to Andalusia and then seeing you know, flamenco, a flamenco dance and then going back to your English fish and chips or whatever. It's just sort of um, just more of a sense that you're aware of it there. I would, I'm sure the majority of visitors wouldn't want to go to a Cornish wrestling display, for example. But actually, if we had those events on and people who were genuinely interested in the culture could come and find out more, um, and the majority of people at least were aware of it, for me, that would be okay. I'd rather that than everybody sort of seeing a fake display or something, yeah. Mm. It's, and it's also about how you promote yourself as a destination. This is the thing, too. Are you just simply promoting your beach tourism or are you actually promoting Cornwall as a distinct place and with a distinct culture? Mm. And that's about how we present ourselves, not necessarily putting individual things mm. on, but actually... Mm. The, putting the information out there and that sense of what, what Cornwall is and encompasses. That's, uh, I think, I really like that it's come back a few times there, it, how we present ourselves um, and us taking responsibility as a, as a place, as the people of Cornwall. Um, and obviously thinking around... Um, tourism and the impacts of tourism and sort of overarching cultures sort of setting the parameters where there's so much link to like climate change and climate disasters that are happening around the world in other other areas that really suffer from over-the-top tourism um i we we've not got much time left i wondered if there was any sort of last thing anyone had like a burning like I want to say <laughs> I, I think you talk about that climate change stuff and I think that's another thing where um with Cornwall that that link with the land the landscape it isn't just beaches it's you know all of our stories you were asking about the authenticity of the culture and I think right from you know from a baby I was always taught oh you know the giant built that hill and things like that and I think there's that really soulful connection with the environment here that that is a part of our culture and it's not just how it looks it's just something that came out of the ground and uh, so I think there's a really deep connection there that resonates with people around the world in telling stories in in creating films and you know people, people coming to visit so I think we've got something really positive that that fits with the age now um that perhaps like in the last century was seen as us sort of trying to be all hippie-ish actually it actually feels that we've got something that we can be proud of and be more confident with really it's quite interesting too professor lovelock actually came up with the gaia hypothesis mm. while he was walking over bobman moor um which, which is uh I know he's fallen out of favour now because he supports uh, nuclear power. Uh, um, but we're um, virtually an island and we we embraced um, wind um, generation. Um, the first commercial wind farm in, in, in Britain was actually at Delabal in North Cornwall. Um, but we haven't had this, the subsequent investment in our, our national grid structure to allow us to have offshore arrays. Why haven't we got offshore arrays of windmills and lots of jobs being created in our ports? Um, so we're always at the cutting edge, but when it comes out to the rewards, we're, we're always 
at the at the at the back of the queue, um, which I find strange. I think the only thing I'd like to add in really is 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 that these discussions can all often sound a bit um, not xenophobic, but a bit insular and that I mean Cornwall has always been at the crossroads it's always been in the middle of all sorts of connections whether it's with Celtic countries with the diasporas abroad it's always been a welcoming culture and I think it still is the language culture is is very welcoming of, of anybody who chooses to engage with it um, and I think it's important that we you know we we're still saying that our culture is is ours but it's a welcoming culture that's, that's, that's a good point we forget to say that because mm. we live with the fact that we're a very outward-looking yeah. uh, society. Um, yes, we have deep roots. Uh, we are Cornish, yeah, but that makes us sort of part of the Celtic family. And um, we haven't even touched on the, the, the diaspora all around the world mm. uh, due to the mining. But it's also people who come to come, choose to be in Cornwall, choose to engage with Cornish culture, are, are, are very much welcomed. It's, it's not a... It's not a sort of closed community in, in any way, really. Thank you. And, yeah, there's a huge... Uh, there's so much more we could talk about with um, the diaspora and the responsibilities of the diaspora. Um, and, uh, yeah, Cornish miners' relationship with that overarching sort of um, colonialism um, that took them elsewhere... Um, but I'll have to book you in for another hour, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all so, so much. Um, really, really fascinating and um, really generous of you to give your time. Maraz Thies, Ragri and Chance Kozel. Maraz Thies. Folk. I wrote a G-Myers horse, Doc Martin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All on Termin. yeah. Nah. Uh, Anguilla again of EU Coronation Street. So it's pure you Anguilla person. Miraz, I guess Goslow is. Thank you for listening. <coughs> Further episodes of the Mescla Bruyon Druis podcast can be found on my website, saveaberryman.co.uk. That's S O V A Y. B-E-R-R-I-M-A-N dot co dot UK where you'll also find guest biographies and a resource page of links to further reading on the topics discussed. If you feel inspired to join the Mescla conversation about contemporary Cornish cultural identity, please get in touch with me, Sove Berryman, via my website or social media You'll find Mescla Bruyon Druis on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. The Mescla Bruyon Druis podcast and project has been made possible due to a wealth of in-kind help and support from many parties, including the Wender Perrin Festival, Gorseth Kernow, Cornwall Council's Cornish Language Office, Coethisan Yeath Canuick, Crescent Kernow, Cornwall Neighbourhoods for Change and Falmouth University Falmouth Campus. The project has been supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England and further funding has been gratefully received from Historic England by Redreath Unlimited. Agas Terman, Agas Gwellas. Thank you for your time. See you later.